Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Wesley. I'm Bob Kaler, and this is the podcast where we dive deep into the sermons of John Wesley, and we've been in the midst of looking at John Wesley's discourses on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're up to discourse number seven, which is one of the shorter discourses of the 13 that Wesley does on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this one particular, this one in particular, he's looking at the verses concerning fasting, Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. Let me read those for you from the New Revised Standard Version. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who was in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, these are verses that many people pass over in the Sermon on the Mount, thinking that fasting is really a minor point and in many places an optional one at that. I grew up in a tradition where we did not talk a lot about fasting that was not part of our on our radar screen for for Christian practice. Many people have not done so. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition or an Anglican tradition or an Eastern Orthodox tradition, you may have had more emphasis on that. But Wesley, being an Anglican and being someone who takes the scriptures very seriously, sees these verses as being so vital, this concept of fasting that he spends an entire discourse on the nature and practice of fasting as an essential means of grace. In fact, Wesley sees the separation of inward and outward religion, like the practice of fasting, as being a device of Satan, who has no small success in separating those things out. So, in other words, Wesley says that we often think of, and we've seen this in many of his writings before, that people can focus on either the inward part of religion and no outward practice or focus on outward practice to the exclusion of any inward transformation. And again, for Wesley, as we've seen all the way through these discourses, is talking about the important connection or the uh, conjunctive theology of bringing inward and outward religion together. Because if we separate them, it creates some false dichotomies. We will tend to go from extreme to extreme. We'll either focus on inward practices to the neglect of outward things, or we'll do outward things and neglect the religion of the heart. And Wesley says that that kind of separation is really a device of Satan. It's a device of Satan that things like faith and works have so often been set at variance with each other. Some have magnified faith to the exclusion of good works, while others have made good works a condition of justification. In the same way, we have the end and the means of religion also at variance with one another. We swing the pendulum back and forth. Some have placed all religion in doing all the outward acts, attending church, Lord's Supper, sermon, scripture reading, etc., but neglect the end of loving God and neighbor. And others have held the ordinances of God in in contempt as though they were a fruitless labor. So Wesley's talking about the fact that we tend to swing back and forth between these extremes, and that really for him is a way of of Satan keeping us from focusing on bringing these things together, which are so important. But none of these means of grace has run into greater extremes than fasting, Wesley says. Some have exalted it beyond reason and scripture, 
while others have completely disregarded it, as I said earlier. It's not an end, but a means of grace when it is duly used, and it will certainly bless us if we use it. And that's why Wesley's going to expend an entire discourse on these two or these three verses. And so he outlines the sermon in four parts. First, he's going to talk about the nature of fasting and its several sorts and degrees. Secondly, what the reasons are for fasting. And third, as he often does in his sermons, how to answer some plausible objections to the kind of fasting that we're talking about. And fourth, in what manner fasting should be performed. So let's look at each one of these parts of his outline. The first one is on the nature of fasting. Now, Wesley defines fasting, and I think that's important for us to do too, because so often when we look at the Lenten season, for example, when we talk about Lenten fasting, people often say, well, I'm giving up something for Lent. Well, that's marvelous, but when we use the word fasting, it means something very specific biblically. Wesley reminds us that fasting is defined in the Old Testament and New Testament as not eating or abstaining from food for a time prescribed. And that there are other things that can accompany fasting. Certainly in the Old Testament, oftentimes we see accompanying fasting, things like wearing sackcloth, putting ashes over one's head. These are not as evident in the New Testament or in the early church. And there are many different degrees or measures of fasting laid out in the scriptures, that some people fasted for several days together. Think of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. That's quite an extensive fast. But most frequently, fasting was one day from morning to evening. This was the fast that was most commonly observed by the early Christians. And there are also half fasts, which took place on Wednesdays and Fridays, with no eating until 3 p.m. As we will see, this was Wesley's own pattern, which is based in some patterns of the early church, and certainly in the Anglican tradition, where Friday uh, is the day of fasting from sundown on Thursday until 3 p.m. on Friday. Now, there's also a difference between fasting and abstinence. Abstinence can mean eating little or abstaining in part or taking in a smaller quantity of food than usual. Now, there's no scriptural evidence for abstinence in that sense, as, as, as Wesley defines it here, but it was certainly part of the Anglican tradition, and Wesley doesn't condemn that. So he puts kind of fasting and abstinence together, although fasting really is the goal. Now, the lowest kind of fasting, according to Wesley, is abstaining from pleasant food. We get this idea from uh, the example of Daniel, for example, who in the book of Daniel abstains from meat, uh, only eats vegetables. He abstains from those pleasurable foods that are often defining the Babylonian empire. So that, that is a different sort of fasting. We have some things like that today where people will say, well, I've given up chocolate or something like that. Uh, abstaining from pleasant food. But remember, that's abstinence, not fasting. But there are also stated times of fasting in the law of Moses. Leviticus 23, 26, for example, talks about the day of atonement as a day of fasting. And there were days of fasting in the early church, like fasting before Easter 
or the annual fasts in the Church of England, the 40 days of Lent as a time of fasting, and there are ember days and rogation days and vigils, and every Friday except for Christmas Day. Ember days in the Anglican calendar are the three days set apart at the beginning of each of the four seasons of the year for fasting and prayer. So the days that you set aside are Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday at the beginning of Lent, the beginning of summer, the beginning of autumn, and the beginning of Advent. Those are the ember days. And then the rogation days are fasting the three days preceding Ascension Day, especially asking God for blessing on agriculture and industry. Those are sort of the classic fasting days in the Anglican calendar. If you look at the the Book of Common Prayer, you'll see those ember days and rogation days kind of laid out. But there are also other occasional fasts appointed from time to time, both in the Scripture and in uh, history. For example, in the scriptures, we'll often see fasting before a battle or in response to a plague for relief of that plague. We see that in the book of the prophet Joel. And so there are a lot of different conditions for fasting, a lot of ways of doing it, doing it regularly, doing it occasionally, different types of fasting. The point is that those who desire to walk humbly with God will find frequent occasions for private seasons of fasting. And that's the kind of fasting that Jesus is referring to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Not just those fasting days that are proclaimed or those regular fasting days, but there might be other days for private fasting. And that's what Jesus is really talking about here, how to conduct oneself when you're on a fast on your own. If you're fasting with everyone else on that particular day, that's, that's quite different. But if you are fasting by yourself, this is how you should act, not in the same way that we don't act in an ostentatious way when we're praying or when we're giving alms, as we saw in the previous uh, discourse and in those previous verses here in, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are also seeing, uh, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6, we're also seeing Jesus say here that we need to we need to fast in a way that is not drawing attention to ourselves, but is drawing us nearer to the glory of God. So that's the nature of fasting for Wesley. It has a lot of different opportunities, a lot of different types of fasting, but there are also grounds and reasons and ends of fasting. The natural ground of fasting, says Wesley, is distress where one is too preoccupied to eat. So, for example, if we are under great stress, we tend to not eat a whole lot. And that's a natural sort of way of fasting when we're confronted with something that's bigger than we are. We may not even consciously do it, but we think of times of great stress when we have not felt hungry, not wanted to eat. That's kind of a a natural fast. Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 9, after his uh, vision of Jesus, for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Was that a religious thing or is that just a shocking experience that Paul responded to and, like many of us, just did not eat or drink? Or think of King Saul or others who are in a situation where they don't eat or drink in response to some crisis. Well, Wesley says the same thing can be true when we feel a heavy burden of sin. Sometimes the cause of sin is overindulgence in food or drink or it's inattention to important things. 
And so to remove the effect, therefore they remove the cause. So if we have a big Thanksgiving meal, for example, we might fast for a while afterward because we've overindulged or we say we're just not going to do that again. We're not going to eat like that again. But fasting also removes the incentives of foolish or hurtful desires. It can cause us to to move away from those things that we have indulged in, no matter what they might be. Another reason people fast is to punish themselves for having abused the good gifts of God by refraining from them, a kind of holy revenge. We step, step away from the things we've abused. So if we have... Uh, been abusing a good gift of God, like say sexuality, or we have abused a good gift of God. Um, you know, there are numerous examples. Think of think of David, you know, who has to step away from things for a while because of his sin, or the Corinthians who have been engaged in pagan practices and they need to step away from those. Uh, there is a sense of fasting, almost a going cold turkey on those things that have drawn us away from God. A fifth reason is that fasting is a help to prayer when we set aside long portions of time for private prayer. It confirms a seriousness of spirit, a deadness to the world. It conveys a love of God. So we may fast naturally. We may fast in response to some sin we have done. We, have, we may respond in fasting to an overindulgence where we've abused the gift of God but one of the main reasons that we fast is for times of prayer and reflection and preparation. Now, there's no necessary connection, Wesley says, between fasting and God's blessings. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So we should not see fasting as kind of, of a transactional action that we do in order to gain God's blessing or God's favor. But rather, fasting will draw us closer to God. At the same time, Wesley says, fasting also seems to avert the wrath of God. Think of the many times in the scriptures that people fasted and God relented. We think of King Ahab. We think of the Ninevites in Jonah's day when Jonah comes and he proclaims, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. They proclaim a fast. They are in sackcloth and ashes and God relents. Or think about uh, Daniel. Daniel, who turns to God to seek an answer in prayer and supplication for his people, and he does so in sackcloth and ashes and, and fasting. He's interceding on behalf of his people to avert God's wrath, to bring them out of exile. But it's not always merely to avert God's wrath, but also to receive God's blessing or to ask for God's blessing. Think about Barnabas and Saul in Acts chapter 13. You had Barnabas and Saul who will become Paul. Uh, the Lord through the Holy Spirit says to the church, set them apart for the work for which I have called them. And then it says after fasting and praying, Acts chapter 13 verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this was a preparation to bless the work of Barnabas and Saul. They fasted and prayed for their mission. And lastly, fasting is a way of receiving a blessing that might otherwise be unobtainable. Think of Matthew 17 verse 19 when the 
after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't do it. They come to Jesus and say, why could we not cast out this demon? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out through fasting and prayer. So when we want something that is beyond our ability, when we want God to do a a greater work, uh, fasting and prayer is a way in which we join in to the will of God and bring ourselves before God seeking that kind of blessing. Doesn't guarantee that it will happen, but it is a way that we draw closer and acknowledge our need before God, uh, before trying to achieve something that we cannot uh, attain on our own. And so fasting is a means to these ends. Again, the goal, like with the means of grace, is not that we do these things as an end in themselves. The ground of fasting is to perform our duties in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. But the overall reason to fast is because Jesus commands us to do so. This is often the reason for Wesley. Why should we take communion as often as possible? Because Jesus commands us to do so. Jesus commanded us to fast often, just like giving alms and prayers. That we have alms and prayers and fasting at here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 should tell us these are three important practices. And so we are to perform them in a manner that will not lose its reward, to do them in a way that honors God, for these are useful means of grace for a purpose. Now, there are some objections to fasting that Wesley will address here. And this is typical for Wesley, as we've seen. He will often anticipate the questions people ask before they ask them, and he puts them here in the discourse. So let's look at some of these objections. First, some have said that Christians should fast from sin, not from food. This is what God requires. And Wesley says, well, of course, we should abstain from sin. But that doesn't mean that God does not require fasting too. A Christian ought to abstain from sin, but how does it follow that he ought not to abstain from good? Should he he also abstain from food as as a result? One should always abstain from sin and sometimes abstain from food for reasons Scripture lays out. Jesus commands fasting, therefore we do it. We abstain from sin, we abstain from food for good reasons. So Wesley says this is not a valid objection. We should fast from sin and occasionally fast from food. Well, the next question is, but isn't it better to abstain from pride and vanity, from anger and discontent, than from food? Well, without question, that that is the case. We abstain from food with this view, that by the grace of God conveyed in our souls through this outward means, says Wesley, in conjunction with all the other channels of his grace which he hath appointed, we may be enabled to abstain from every passion and temper which is not pleasing in his sight. We refrain from the one that being endued with power from on high, we may be able to refrain from the other. So one of the reasons that we fast, according to Wesley, is that if we are abstaining from food, that is a form of self-denial. If we're able to engage in that kind of self-denial in a small thing, such as uh, abstaining from food, then we can better be trained to abstain from things like pride and vanity and anger and discontent. This actually proves the reason that we ought to fast. We refrain from one so that we might refrain from the other. We refrain from food so that we might refrain from sin. Fasting trains us in self-denial. 
Now, the third objection is an interesting one. Some say, well, we fast, but it doesn't work. Indeed, it seems to make things worse. And Wesley says, yes, that's quite possible. But the problem then isn't with this means of grace, but rather the manner of using it. And so if fasting doesn't seem to have any spiritual effect, we have to do it in a different manner. Because if we do what God commands as he commands it, his promise will not fail. We have to continue to work at it. If one way of fasting doesn't seem to make it for us, we need to find another way of doing that and make it a regular practice. The fourth objection is also interesting. Isn't it mere superstition to imagine that God regards such little things as these, such a little thing as fasting? Why is that even important? It's kind of superstitious to think that fasting really matters. Well, Wesley's response is, if you think so, you are claiming that all who practiced fasting in the Bible were weak, superstitious people. Was Jesus himself a superstitious person because he fasted? Indeed, they rarely attempted anything concerning the glory of God without fasting and prayer. Read through the New Testament, read through the Old Testament, and see how many times before some major event, some major decision, fasting and prayer was present. Those were disciplines that were designed to bring people before God, to recognize their need for God before doing something that God commanded. Now, the fifth objection is this. If fasting is so great, should we do it continually as the body will bear? Well, if fasting is so marvelous, shouldn't we just fast all the time? Wesley says, well, sure, let none be discouraged from doing this. Indeed, it can be helpful for one's health in many ways. One of the great things we hear about today about diet is that intermittent fasting can be very helpful for us from a health standpoint. We can, we can abstain from food. We can eat fewer meals. That does help us. Jennifer and I do this all the time. We tend to eat a, a large midday meal. We eat a, a small breakfast, a larger midday meal, and then maybe just a snack in the evenings. We only eat one large meal per day. That's a way of intermittent fasting. I can tell you that's been great for my health. It's been great for, for both of us. But the point is not how much one fasts, but whether it is effectual, whether it is done for the right reasons. Wesley says, use as much fasting as you please, but don't neglect the key times for fasting as outlined previously that we've talked about. Intermittent fasting for health is good, but it shouldn't preclude fasting for spiritual purposes. We fast because Jesus commands it. We fast for a specific purpose, not just a physical purpose, but also a spiritual purpose. And then let Wesley gets to his last point for the sermon, in what manner are we to fast? First, let it be done unto the Lord with our eye fixed on him. So the purpose of fasting is to glorify God, to express our repentance for sin, to wait for an increase in grace, to add seriousness to our prayers, to avert the wrath of God, to obtain the promises he has made to us in Christ. But Wesley says, beware of mocking God with your fasting. This is what Jesus is warning against here. We don't fast in a way where we disfigure our faces or make sure that everyone knows that we are on a fast. We should do so in secret. 
not showing off for others. That is receiving our reward. But when you fast, Jesus says, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's not about ostentatiousness. It's not about fasting to gain some kind of spiritual capital with the people around us. It's done for our relationship with God. But the flip side of that is that we have to beware of thinking that we merit anything from God by our fasting. We don't fast in order to get something from God. It's not transactional. We fast because it draws us closer to God and we receive what God is willing to offer us. It's a way of recognizing our emptiness, a way of denying ourselves. But we cannot expect God to do everything we want just because we are fasting. We are looking for God, not looking for the results. So we perform the bare outward act. That's no guarantee that we're going to receive the blessing from God. But we do it anyway, because fasting in and of itself is a blessing because it draws us closer to God himself. And then Wesley also says that we must guard against afflicting the body so much that it cannot perform service for the Lord. We can't fast to the point that it, damages our health because we have to preserve our health as a good gift from God. So this is all about balance. It's not about fasting to the point where we're starving ourselves. We have to maintain our health for the kingdom. God has designed us, given us bodies for that work. We have to maintain those bodies. Fasting has to be targeted and used wisely. And so Wesley says, if we cannot wholly abstain from food, then we must at least abstain from pleasant food. Maybe your particular uh, makeup does not allow you to abstain from food completely. Then Wesley says, well, there are other ways of fasting if you can't do that. People who are diabetic, people who have other conditions may not be able to abstain from food completely, but maybe they can abstain from a particular kind of food, from pleasant food. Maybe it's abstaining from meat on a particular day, or it's abstaining from something else that we would normally enjoy as a way of recognizing our need before the Lord. And neither should fasting affect our bodies. It should not also affect our souls. Let it be a season of devout mourning. Our repentance should lead to renewal. It shouldn't lead to more degradation of our souls. Fasting should be lifting us up, drawing us closer to God rather than breaking us down. And so with fasting, Wesley says, let us join in fervent prayer, pouring ourselves out to God in confession and humility. That's why fasting and prayer are often connected together. We fast in order to create times for prayer, in order to focus our prayers. One of the practices that I've seen used quite a bit is that when you were on a fast, you would take the time that you would normally spend on eating, take that hour, that half hour or whatever it is, and spend that time in prayer instead. And oftentimes, when I've done this, the rumbling of my belly is really helpful when you're praying that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, for you're reminded that it is God who provides. And it also allows you to 
be in empathy and in solidarity with those who are hungry all the time. It's a, it's a connective piece. And so it's a reminder that all of us are in need of that daily bread. And if we have excess, we are to, to share it. It's also a season for enlarging our prayers on behalf of ourselves and others. Fasting can be a marvelous time for corporate confession, for crying out to God to bring forth his kingdom. If we're seeking revival in the church, if we're seeking a restoration of our land, corporate times of fasting and prayer can be very, very helpful and important. It's a communal act that draws us closer to God and reminds us of our need for him and for the work of his kingdom. And lastly, Wesley says, we should add works of mercy to our fasting. That when we are fasting, it's not merely about ourselves. It's about also spending time serving others who may be in need. He quotes here from Isaiah 58, beginning at verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So this is a, a kind of fast where in which we abstain from food, we, we practice self-denial, but we also engage in acts that are lifting up others, those works of mercy that help others and demonstrate our love for our neighbor as ourselves. So there's a lot going on here with fasting. This is, again, why Wesley spends an entire discourse on these three verses. They're really important, and I think a major neglected part of our Christian practice that we need to re-engage. I know over times in my life when I've engaged in fasting, it's been incredibly helpful to me and to practice that during particular seasons of the year, like Lent, having a Friday fast during Lent, or having periodic fasts throughout the year, uh, or making sure that if I'm doing intermittent fasting, I'm not just doing it for health, but doing it spiritually, can be extremely helpful to us. It draws us closer to God. But remember, the fasting itself is not the end of things. It is the means by which we draw closer to God, by which we draw closer to His will. Now, Wesley has his own pattern of fasting. I looked this up. And there is such a thing called the Wesley Fast, and there's a link to that on online. I'll make sure that I put those that link in the show notes so that you can see how the Wesley Fast works. But for periods of his life, Wesley advocated fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, but then he settled more commonly into the Anglican pattern of fasting on Fridays. And the way that that fast would work, it begins on Thursday at sundown, so sort of after the evening meal, and then it ends at 3 p.m. on Friday. So it's not a terribly long fast, but it is a fast that is enough for you to begin to feel it. Now, when you fast, most doctors will tell you it's best to make sure you drink a lot of water, making sure that you are taking care of, of your needs according to what your body needs. But this is a pattern that's a spiritual discipline, just like scripture reading or like prayer, that can draw us closer and that can help us be more effective as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus commands this for a reason. And the reason is that it is, it is a way of us becoming the people God created us to be, to recognize our dependence upon God and to recognize our need for self-denial. 
again, if we are faithful in denying ourselves in small things, it becomes easier to deny ourselves in larger things when temptation comes along. So those are some of the Wesley's teachings on fasting. Again, this is a shorter discourse, but I think it's a very important one. Think about your own practice of fasting. If you've never practiced fasting, I would encourage you to, to give it a try. Uh, and again, I will post the, the link to the Wesley fast on there so you can get an idea of what that looks like. You might want to look up some other things on fasting and how that has been practiced throughout Christian history It's an extremely valuable but often neglected means of grace. Thank you again for joining me for this edition of Wednesdays with Wesley. We'll be back next week with discourse number eight. In the meantime, I hope that you'll follow me on Twitter at RevBKaler or on Instagram also at RevBKaler. You can also email me with your questions or comments at PastorBK at TLUMC.org. I also encourage you to leave a review on your favorite favorite podcast platform that does help to drive traffic to the site. We're trying to get the word out about Wednesdays with Wesley and to get more engagement around these important sermons. I don't know about you, but I find these to be really vitally important and a great part of my own discipline each week diving into these sermons. Uh, I'm getting to know John Wesley even more, and the more that I get to know, the more that I am blessed by that knowledge. So we'll see you back here next time for Wednesdays with Wesley. Have a great week. Enjoy the summer weather wherever you happen to be.